Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove, Shittim, to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, came to the house of a harlot named Rechav. Well done. And lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rechav, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. We have ent- who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the con- all the country. Then the men, I'm sorry, then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. When the men, where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone, they shut the gate. Now, behold, they, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, but the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So that a man answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she came to them, go to the mountain or get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, in which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your own home. So it will be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath in which you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord then in the window. They departed and went out to the mountain, stayed there three days, until the pursuers returned. 
The pursuers sought them along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all of the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Pray with me, would you please? God, you are so good. And on this night, in the middle of July 2015, we come to you. We have set aside this night to fellowship with you and with each other, to enjoy your presence and each other's fellowship. Make this night brilliant, beautiful, amazing beyond our wildest imagination. Speak to us. Captivate us in your word. May we have so much fun in your word and enjoy and be taught and encouraged and challenged. Lord, don't let any one of us here not be touched tonight, regardless of where we've come from, age, background, or anything. If there be anyone who has yet to know you, let tonight be the night of their salvation. Let, Lord, tonight be an amazing night for any and all of us, I pray. So have your way now. We commit this night to you. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of being able to assemble like this, to enjoy each other's company, to celebrate the gift you've given us of life, and, Lord, tonight to fellowship with each other. May we truly fellowship, Lord. May we truly enjoy you. May we truly love you and be forever transformed. We commit this night to you. May your Holy Spirit have total and absolute control. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight, said, would any please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Oh, let the Bible minister to you tonight and let it have the final say. Okay, so here's the situation. Forty years after these people have left Israel, they are now standing at the same fjords, the same Jordan that they looked at 38 years ago. 38 years ago, 12 spies were sent to spy out the land. God had promised them that the land was rich, fortified, beautiful, wilder and richer than they've even known Egypt to be. And he also promised them that he would lead them into battle and bring them the victory. And they sent spies, one from each tribe, 12 tribes, 12 spies. Of the 12 spies, one was, of course, from Judah. His name was Caleb. Caleb means dog. And one guy's name was originally Hoshea, which means salvation, who gets the name changed to Yahoshea, or as we know it, Joshua, which means God is salvation. Of the 12 tribes, they go out there and they spy and they come back. And this is their report. The land is everything God said it was. Like we should doubt. But the battle's bigger than we thought, too. The land's better than we thought, but the battle's bigger. Now, understand, if God promised the land would be better than they thought, and he was true on that, as we would expect... And then he promised that he would lead us into battle. Does it matter the size of the battle before you? Does it really matter the opponent that stands against you? Does it really matter the girth or the media coverage or the 
momentum or the finances or the utilities or all of those things that we size up an opponent when we have to fight him. But have you learned yet that God allows an opponent to get as big as he possibly can before God takes him down? Goliath didn't just show up and get taken down by a little shepherd boy. He had enough time to look big and scare everybody else half out of their mind. When we get to the book of Revelation, the Antichrist will overcome seemingly impossible odds. To the point where everyone will say, who can stand against this guy? And the Lord, what we read is, will knock him down with his breath and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. This guy that's big and bad that nobody can stand against. And people go, oh no, who can stand against him? Jesus is like, here, I come to save the day. And bam, it's over. But he's not going to do that when he's little. He'll do that when it's big. So that only he gets the credit. Well, with these spies, the problem is, is they were busy sizing up the enemy. Instead of actually staring at their God. And we'll do the same thing, won't we? Like, we'll want to make sure that God knows the size of the bill. The capacity or the intensity of that emotional relationship strain. We'll let him know the deadline. And of course, we'll always make sure that we have to inform him of what happens if God doesn't show up when he's supposed to. Is if God needs to get more information. God's like, if you'd stop talking, I could actually fill you in on information that will change everything. Well, of those spies, two of those spies actually gave only a good report. They came and brought fruit from the promised land with them. I said, oh man, if you could see this and taste this, what's wrong with you guys? If God was true about this, won't he be true about it all? And everyone believes the ten spies with the negative report because we're so prone to do that. I want to warn you. We live in a culture, and I don't just mean that in England, that's the Western culture as a whole, where we are looking for excuses to fail, not for reasons to overcome. And if we can get a reason to fail, excuse to fail, we won't even start. And we live by this. Find something wrong in me, find something wrong around me, find something wrong with the situation. I just don't want to really put forth the effort in the end of it. I'll feel like I'm going to fail. So why not even, do I just find a decent reason not to start? And we know that. But those two guys were angry. And those two guys were Yehoshua from Ephraim and Caleb from Judah. And the people were like, oh, God brought us out here to kill our children. Oh, I can't believe God would do this. God's like, I'll tell you how much I love your kids. They'll all go in. You'll all die. Oh, except those two guys with the good report. So for the next 38 years, that whole generation dies except for two people. Joshua and Caleb. The book of Joshua is that Joshua. And now here we are, 38 years later. Joshua's already looked at this land once before. He was the spy that went over last time. I remind you. And now, how many spies does he send here? Two. Did you get that? It's like, why send 12? Remember what happened the last time that 12 were sent? Let's just get two good guys we trust. And it appears that he sent them secretly. In other words, he wasn't even going to give them a chance to give a bad report and de-spirit the people. He was like, you go and you come back. So 
think about this for a moment. What were the spies supposed to be spying out? I mean, I hear the song in my head, right? Dun, 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 dun. I hear the song. What are they spying out? The people? They already know the size of the people. The land? They already know the land. What are they spying out? Well, traditionally, when you send spies, you send them out for two reasons. One is you send them to find out what their artillery is, so you kind of know how to position your troops. That makes sense. In other words, if all your cannons are on the north side, go in through the south. The other thing is you go to find a chink in the wall. That's really important. How do I get in? How do we get into this place? Now, here's the fun part. Joshua is sending people to go spy out a property for the idea of finding out how to get into a wall that God's going to tear down completely. So there is a bit of a funny thing about that. But Joshua doesn't know that yet. All Joshua knows is he's trying to do what he knows, which is what we would all do at that point. So hear me in this. He sends two guys to go spy out to find a chink in the wall. Now listen, there's a story, by the way, of one of the one of the fortresses of Syria that actually had been lobbing bombs into Israel, into the Golan Heights, by the way, in the area basically, sort of around the area of the Sea of Galilee and just north of it. And the, the, the fortress seemed impenetrable, seemed impregnable. And what had happened is, is that they watched for a long time and they had these guys, of course, you know, they're Israelis, so they have these killer, you know, everything. And they have these amazing binoculars. And they watched, and there was a guy who, who was on the wall, and he leaned over, and his helmet fell off. And so the guy went through the secret passage to go and get his helmet. And the Israelis went, there it is. There's the secret entrance. But they had been spying it to find the secret entrance. There was the idea. Who would have thought that, well, where was the chink in the wall in this case? So let me ask you, how do you get to the wall and find a place to hide where you can go in and come out and people don't blink an eye if you come in at night. A harlot's house. Now, I'm not telling you these guys are seeking to deploy their service, her services. And by the way, for what it's worth, and let me kind of give you a word for the word. Can you say the word zaneh? Zaneh, now you've said the word. Zaneh is the word, by the way, for which they use here for harlots. And there are some that would say, well, actually, she really wasn't a harlot. She was a hostess. You know, it was sort of like a hotel. In those days, they were called caravansaries or comms. And clearly she was there. So like, hello, welcome to the Jericho Inn. You know, the problem is, is that no woman ran a con in the Eastern world 2,000 years ago. Or in this case, we're talking about 33,000, actually 3,500, 3,400 years ago. The only gals who ran a particular establishment were prostitutes. And by the way, for what it's worth, that's actually made really clear in the Gospel or the book of James. If you, excuse me, if you have your Bibles with you, flip in them to the words, the end of your Bible, to the book of James. See if you can find it. If you went backwards, you have the book of Revelation, these little books, these Johns, and you'll have these Peters, you'll have, you'll have Hebrews, and you'll have James. And find James chapter 2. Some of you are thankful you have your phone. You just kind of flip through and find it, but just the same. In James chapter 2, go ahead and find it. It's cool. Take your time. It's cool. You just Look at this. What you're doing. You're flipping through your Bibles. And in James chapter 2, verse 25, 
It says, likewise, as James is trying to prove that if you're going to have faith, it should do something. Likewise, was not Rechav the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so was faith without works. It's dead also. Clearly, according to James, she was still a, she was a harlot. She wasn't a hostess. And by the Greek, there's no doubt. Here's the most fascinating thing. Some of you who are familiar with Scripture are familiar with the book of Hebrews. And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews at all, what chapter is the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews? Chapter 11. Why? What is chapter 11? It's the Hall of Faith. Maybe some of you, if you're not familiar, it's a really amazing chapter. It's like God's trophy hallway. You know that place where in secondary school they have that kind of cabinet where all the trophies are from the, all of the pennants and the games and the matches that they've won? And then they have another one where it's like the greatest players, if someone ever went pro or whatever, they have sort of their stuff back when they were embarrassing with their weird haircut and their strange outfits. You know, I mean, they have those in there. Well, get the idea. God has one of those too. It's just called Hebrews chapter 11. And what's interesting about Hebrews chapter 11, and please hear me in this, is God lists out... Ten people for which he really develops. He says, by faith, this is what they did. Because they trusted me. And that's all faith is, by the way. Pistyuchol just means trust. He's saying, because they trusted me, this is what they did. And here's the list. Abel was the first. If you're not familiar with him, Cain and Abel. In Cain and Abel, Abel offered a sacrifice pleasing to God. Cain did not. And so basically, Cain, instead of changing his attitude, he just basically went until he was no longer able. Then there was Noah and Enoch, who, by the way, saw no death. Noah, who, of course, built the ark. Abraham, who left this land in comfort and followed God. Sarah, his wife, who trusted God for a baby. Their son, Isaac, as he was offered up. Jacob, his son, as he went and followed God and named his children and blessed them. Joseph, his son. Moses, who walked away from all the benefits of Egypt to follow him. That's nine names. Do you know who the tenth name is? Of the ten he develops, this gal. Could you imagine that? I mean, think of all the other people God could have mentioned. As a matter of fact, after that, the writer kind of gets his point. like, listen, you know, I really don't even have time to develop the idea of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Sam, uh, Samuel and the prophets. I don't have time to develop all those guys, but at least I gave you these ten. And of the ten, the last one was this girl. Could you imagine that in the Middle East today? Read that chapter in Saudi Arabia and see how they take it. How amazing that God would bring that into this. That this gal is actually marked as a gal of great faith. But she certainly didn't start that way. Can I just say again, God loves you too much to not take you as you are. But he loves you way too much to leave you that way. And he never told you to clean up your act and come to him. He told you come to him and he would give you. But you come to him in faith. So don't for a moment ever think, well, I've got to do this first and then I can come to God. Why don't you actually just come to God and let God deal with you and then let him make the, the difference. You've heard it said before, God's a good fisherman. He catches his fish and then he cleans them. So here we are in this story where these guys have been sent. These guys are sent to find a chink in the wall. These two guys, and where do they go? They go to that place, by the way, where anonymity is paramount to operation, where they can come and go without necessarily being seen, but they are seen. 
And they are seen by someone who tells the king. Did you notice that? Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men to spy out. Notice secretly, chapter 2, verse 1. He doesn't want them bringing bad reports and dispiriting everyone. So he's like, go and view the land, especially Jericho. What made Jericho so unique? Yericho. Yericho means one of two things. Yericho, by the way, means moon. Because, believe it or not, back in those days, the people worshipped the moon deity. And the moon deity, by the way, looked like a crescent moon. And you can see that with the Ishmaelites, by the way, from which much of the Islamic world makes their lineage from or draws it from. And in the days when Joseph was sold, it was clear that they were identified by their crescent moon amulets. They were around their camels, for goodness sakes, and around their houses. Funny, because of course that is still the symbol today of the Islamic world. And these individuals had made quite a name here in Yericho. The area that was surrounding it was there were several hills, there were mountains there. Of course, we see some of that here when she tells them to go hide in those hills. Yebel, by the way, for what it's worth, Yebel Karatu, Karatu is, the, is one of the areas, it's one of the main ranges. It's up as high as roughly 500 meters. So it is quite, and it's rife with caves. I imagine that's where she's telling them to go. It's also quite fragrant because a lot of balsa wood grew around there. But the thing it was known for that protected a city was its wall. And of course, that's what we're going to see as we get beyond this chapter. Now, now understand there are certain defenses that actually kept a city safe. Here's the problem. You want a city up on a hill because that way you have gravity to your favor. That when people come at you, you can like roll down stones. That's helpful. If you're at the bottom of the hill, that doesn't work out so well. The problem is, is you need another thing to stay alive. What do you need to stay alive in the Middle East 3,000 years ago? Water. Water doesn't have a tendency to run uphill. That becomes a real problem. So you need to find a place, by the way, where you can still go get water, but somehow in it you can still be up on a hill. That's a bit rough. So what Jericho did, by the way, and by the way, we know there was an old Jericho and a new Jericho. Jesus speaks about that in regards to the parable of the Good Samaritan. That understand is that they built, well, they didn't just build one wall, they built two. And what happened is the first wall, for what it was worth, to give you an idea, was four to five stories tall. That was the wall. So I want you to take a look at this right here. That is not five stories tall. That means the wall was higher than the highest point of our roof right now. That is, that's, and now here's the, the crazy part. It was also the first wall, because there were actually two, the first wall was one to two stories deep. So in other words, basically, if you consider it, that basically the first wall was higher than this, and from this pillar to that pillar back there, that was the depth of the wall. And that's how high it was beyond. Now, any one of you think, oh yeah, no problem. We'll get right over that. Single bound. Then there was a small space for which they had dug to get water. And then there was another wall equally as high and half as wide. So once you made it past the first wall, they sat on the second one and just nailed you. So understand somewhere in this, God's going to have to do more than get him over the wall. What God's going to do is he's going to take down the wall. Now let me ask you, in your own life for a minute, in your own life for a minute, 
Is there anything in your life that you think is that impregnable? That is that entrenched in your life? So deeply established. Some weakness. Some chink in your armor. Some part of your Achilles heel. That you just think, I'm just going to die with this. I will always be this. I'll always be A, and you have already given yourself the name for it. I'll always be a drug addict. I'll always struggle with this sexual sin. I'll always have this hatred. I'll always have this weakness. I'll always fall into this. Do you think that that's the case? Well, let me just say again, this God is not just the person who takes you over the wall. He's a wall destroyer. But we don't know that yet here. Of our first of our three great battles we see here, what we're doing is we're spying out to see how do we get into this thing. Could you imagine how weird that would be? And so two guys are sort of, what do they have to do? Think about it. You have to walk around the outside of the city without being seen to try to find any way in. And so somewhere down the line, they're kind of walking and they see something open for business and they kind of know that's a place where they're going to be able to go and start viewing the city. So, notice, by the way, the people are well aware of it. Now, this is what happens. So you're kind of following me in on this. They came into the house of the harlot named Rachav and they lodged there. Now, prostitutes, by the way, were also bed and breakfasts. Emphasizing perhaps both, if you will. Now, not everybody had to actually use the bed to have the breakfast. But understand in that, people back then, not everyone had a bed to sleep in. They slept on floors. They slept on anything. And they carried their coat and they just basically put it over them. And that was basically where they slept. Some of you are familiar with that because the farther you get to the Middle East, and if you ever get on one of those sort of ferries and everyone has to sleep on the ferry, that's what it looks like. It looks like a bomb went off and everyone's just sleeping on the people and the people's sheep. And then there's always the one American, because he's the one with a can of antibacterial everything, spraying his corner and telling everyone not to get near him. So hear me in this. They came in there, and it doesn't appear in any means that they used her, the services of her, but they obviously came in and they found a place to stay. The king finds out about it, verse 2. And the king says, Behold, men have come here tonight, and they came to search out the, 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 the country, for which, then, she lies, doesn't she? Now, you need to know something. God never applauds or condones the lie. He does applaud the fact that she hid them. He does applaud the fact that she sent them out another way. He does applaud the fact that what her declaration here is going to be more clear from her than it actually is from the spies. But God never applauds a sin. But he can see faith even in stupid actions. So let's give a case in point, case in story. Once, by the way, we were on a, I was on a, a panel with a group of other pastors. And they asked the question, is it ever okay to lie? And they brought up this scenario of a girl comes to your house for protection from her husband who's been very violent. He comes to the door and says, is my, bro- is my wife here? I was the last guy on the, the, the panel. And, they, they had, and the guys were kind of like, they were kind of playing this kind of relative, yeah, well, you're protecting the girl, so that's cool, it's all right, you know, that kind of thing. And then they got to me, and of course, I'm not real good with that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not good with shifting shadow stuff. I, I have no shades of gray. And so I'm just like, look at 
No, it's not okay to lie. And the funny part was, within the last week before that, there was a girl named Stephanie who had married a guy that we knew was trouble, who had beat her within inches of her life, and she came to our house for protection, and we had the very situation they were bringing up. When the guy came to the door and said, is my wife here? And I said, yes, she is, and she's in our house for protection now when you're not getting in. There was no lie. And the reason I say that is, please don't think for a moment, if you do something that's sinful, but it has a positive end to it, that God's going to be cool with the sin. God's not going to say, Lucas, go rob that liquor store, but give the money to charity. And the reason I say that is God has ways of actually keeping us from having to sin and still acting in faith. But this girl, I remind you, is not a Christian. She's not a Jew. And she lives in a community, by the way, that hates God. That's not her moral standard. And I wouldn't expect it to be. The most amazing thing isn't that she sinned. The most amazing thing is that she acted in faith. Does that make any sense at all? And somewhere in this, she becomes aware of things, and her declarations are beautiful. So these two men come in, and when it says notice, she says, well, yeah, they came in. I don't know where they went. You might want to go find them. I think they went that way. Sound like many stories or like many old movies. I think they went that way. So the guys all head off and off they go that way. And then she goes and starts to speak to them. It tells, by the way, verse 6, she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them, literally hidden him and the stalks of flax which she had laid in order of the roof. Now, the reason I say that is it's in the singular, so I get the idea each one was hidden, they were separated to be hidden. Now, what is this girl doing with flocks, stacks, stalks? Which I said that right. Stacks of flax. Stalks of flax? That was so hard to say. Did you try it? See what I'm Try yourself. Now, understand, I remind you, in those days, there weren't a lot of very, well, they weren't standardized currencies. People worked off a swap. I wonder if this was a payment for her services from someone prior. But understand, flax can grow one to two meters tall. It can grow as tall as me. And, it, and get the idea that what they would do with it is often they would cut the whole thing and they would take it and they would soak it in water and then they would put it up in the, in the heat. And what would happen is, is that if you know what flax, do you know what flax is? It's from which where you get sort of, a, where you make linen out of and that kind of stuff. Well, understand what they had to do is they had to be able to put it in a way so they could pull it out and make it stringy so they could make it a bit like yarn. Well, the way they did that is they soaked the entire thing in water and then they stood it up to dry. And as it dried, the uh, shelling around it cracks so they can actually pull it and it strings out like yarn at that point. So it's actually brilliant how this works. So she's got, imagine if you will, think of it as sort of like she's got like 90 broomsticks standing up on, them, on themselves. So there's kind of these little walls. And she takes them and she goes, all right, I'm going to tuck you in that corner. I'm going to tuck you in that corner. There, now stay. Just be quiet. And these things are, are drying. But notice her declaration, you guys. This is what it says. It says, now, verse 8. When they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to them, I know that the Lord. Have you seen that there? Up to this point, nobody has used his name as much as she will here. In verse 9, the Lord. Verse 10, how the Lord dried up. Verse 11, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Verse 12, swear to me by the Lord. 
That's 9, 10, 11, and 12 she uses his name. And that's not just a title here. That's a, that's a name. That's that tetragram. yad Vavhe. We would say Jehovah or Yahweh. I, I favor the second of those. It's, it's truer, uh, truer Hebrew. And this is what she says, developing that. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Stop. Isn't this Jericho land? Isn't this the king of Jericho's land? There is a teaching among the church. And I want to clear it up according to Scripture. That says somewhere down the line, Adam had the title to, to the earth. And when Adam sinned, he gave Satan dominion over the earth. It sounds logical, I guess, from that perspective. But it's just not biblical. Psalm 24, verse 1, David says, All the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. In Psalm 50, verse 12, God speaks. He says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. Get the idea that it isn't like God looks and He goes, You know, Brune, if I was hungry, I'd have you make me that voice joyce stuff that with intestines. It isn't like God said that. God's like, I don't need that. The entire world's mine. It's mine. I own it. I still own it. Psalm 89, verse 11, the response then is, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness is yours. You founded the whole thing. And the reason I say that is, it appears to me that this girl, who wasn't raised Jewish, wasn't raised in a religious home, was actually raised in the most ungodly of environments, seems to know more than most of the Jewish people living in that day. Do you ever know people like that? They have never met God, but they seem to have a better grasp on who He is than many people in the church. Like the first thing they realize is, you know what? To be honest, it seems like this is His land, and it just seems like He's already given it to you. Which is a little bit rough, which means actually, though I'm living on this land, it actually belongs to you guys now. Do you know that? When you walk through the streets of Camden, when you walk through the streets down there somewhere near sort of Cambridge Circle or Hackney or, or, or someplace you know, down in Brixton or wherever it is, wherever the places that you walk in, things do not seem like saying hallelujah would be a real common sort of sound you would hear there. Do you still realize that that land belongs to God? Do you still realize that the fullness that belongs to that land belongs to God? That Satan, no matter how many sort of stakes he wants to stick in the ground or how many flags he wants to put in, it's not his ground to do it. And I belong to that king. How about you? Do you realize that? My dad owns that land. Now that doesn't mean you get weird and you just sort of walk out to Buckingham, you know, Buckingham Palace and say, excuse me, but this is my land because I'm a Christian. But stop for a moment and stop thinking somehow that Satan's got a bulldozer and you're standing there with a feather fighting him. And he's like, well, this is my land, you can't get near it. I'm like, excuse me, that's a lie. But then I should expect that from you. Why am I even talking to you? You're the father of lies. My God owns the land. And the whole book of Revelation is my God taking back the land he rightly, that he rightly owns. That's the whole idea of it. And the reason I say that is this girl kind of gets that. So when people say, oh, wasn't that a dark place? Do you realize you have the light of the world? How could someplace be dark if you were there? Unless you're putting yourself under a bushel. Jesus, the light of the world, who dwells in inapproachable light, Paul tells Timothy, lives inside of you. 
How could a place be dark? When David writes Psalm 139, and he says, even darkness is light to you. Where in the world can I go and hide from you, God? If I went to hell, you'd find me there. There's no place dark in your presence, God, and anywhere I go, your presence is with me. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to stop freaking out over what people think is Satan's territory. It belongs to my God. And I'm his kid. And he says this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Now, this is the thing you might miss. Just because somebody's afraid doesn't mean they're going to run. Some people fight in fear. And that's actually quite sad in this situation. Some people are going to make your life miserable and actually make you afraid because you don't realize they are. I've learned that some of the bullies are the biggest, weakest people there are. The most fearful, they just won't show it. They're too big to show it. When Israel started getting persecuted by Egypt, they were persecuted because Pharaoh was intimidated by them. Not because Pharaoh just didn't like them. And when the world gets kind of in your face and tells you to shut up about Jesus, and you think it's because they're actually stronger than you are, and it's their territory, can I remind you, the one who spoke this universe into existence lives inside of you. And you know the verse. Greater is he who was in you than he who was in the world. So exactly how am I supposed to be afraid of this? What are they going to do? Unleash a legion of demons? They can't get inside of me. I'm sorry, I'm occupied. There's no room in this inn, baby. The king of the universe lives here. And she looks and she says, Listen, we're freaked out, man. But what about the king that says, Bring these guys out? There are some people, even in recognizing they're defeated, would rather die with the ship than get in the lifeboat. And you know that. And that grieves me. Because my God doesn't want that. What my God wants is for you to to say yes to Jesus, even tonight. Stop fighting Him. Surrender to His love. She says, you know what we heard about? Verse 10. We heard about what happened at the Red Sea. By the way, that happened on the way to this place where Joshua went across to spy the last time. She was like, I remember that. I was there. She's like, I heard this crazy story where God actually split this gigantic sea before me. Joshua's like, well, you heard the story. I lived it. Joshua walked through that dry ground she's speaking about. Imagine the time when someone says, I've heard. Now, please hear me on this. Have you ever spoken to somebody and you tell them a story and something inside of them is looking back at you in a way that you know they're not just connecting, they've lived it? Imagine sitting with an unbeliever. And maybe at first they're going to throw out their things to freak you out, to see whether you're easily intimidated. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way? Are you that close-minded? Do you really believe God created everything with a bunch of words? How big is your God? My, my guy could have said it with one word. He could have blinked his eyes and the whole thing could have happened. He chose to put some words in there. Like, I think that that would be limiting. Like, wow, could God really, could he be that fantastical? He could do anything he wants. 
And they start playing this game with you, this push, this verbal pushing game. And instead of you just pushing back and trying to get antagonistic with them, you just stand your ground and you're like, yeah, of course I believe that. It's kind of weird you don't. You're the weird one, not me. One day, everybody's going to agree with me. One day. You should do it now. Every knee is going to bow. Beat the rush. Do it with me now. And as they play that game and they push and they shove, they say, I've heard stories. Once they get there. I mean, well, I've heard stories about this priest that did this nasty thing. I've heard stories about the Inquisition. Stuff that they've never been a part of. But it's like, have you ever heard any great stories about God? I've heard stories about how he healed someone. How he really reached into the life and changed and revolutionized someone. So let me ask you, in this room right now, I'm not talking about, well, you felt like you had a headache. With all due respect, that's still a great healing. But you've actually, you can say, I am very obviously clear that God has done the, the, a miracle of healing in my life at any given point in my life. Can you just raise your hand with me right now? Now look around the room. I'm raising my hand, by the way, not as an example. I'm raising my hand because I'm one of those people. Okay, how about this? I've heard the story that, that Jesus actually delivers addicts. If you've been addicted to something and God has delivered you from that, raise your hand with me right now. Now look around the room. No, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Why be afraid of that? That's who you were, not who you are, right? Look around. Do you realize what you're doing? You're being a Joshua. You're being a spy. Now these spies I don't know about, but can you imagine if it were Joshua? I heard about how God dried up the Red Sea. Now these guys may have been there. They would have just been kids. Joshua, he lived it, man. He walked right through that place. Have you? Have you seen what it was like when you thought, I'll never get to the other side of this? But Jesus bled and died on a cross for you and walked you across. You thought, oh my goodness, I actually do have new life right now. See, the thing is that people have kind of heard the stories. They just don't see it fleshed out. And what they need is for us to do so. But notice what she says beyond that. And... Obviously, seas aren't a problem for this God of yours. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og. And by the way, they were giants. And why is that important? Because remember when those other ten spies said, we're like grasshoppers on the side of these guys. These guys are gigantic. But then what God did after that is he took down gigantic guys so that you could see that God takes down the giants. But these guys, that Sihon and Og, were giants even to the people that lived in Jericho. See, here was the thing. Do you know what the most invincible kingdom was of that day? Egypt. And that's where God took him out of in the first place. He took the big guy down the first time around. I mean, if he could take down Egypt, then why in the world would we think that he couldn't do anything else? There was the Red Sea a problem? Was Jericho a problem after he took down Egypt? Egypt had giant triangular buildings that, that made this wall, this giant wall here, look like nothing. Do you get it? Don't you see what God's already done? The moment you said yes to him, he already defeated the greatest enemy. The rest of it now is walking in victory with him. And there are other people out there, mind you to say, like this gal, who are desperate for the truth and want to see it in someone's eyes like yours. Interesting, then Rahab means one of two things, broad or wide or pride. I do find that interesting because I always think of pride's a prostitute anyways. When you're actually so focused on yourself, you'll sell yourself out for applause for an attaboy or an attagirl. 
for somebody to like you. And you know what? Every one of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we could say that there are times where we sold ourselves out just to feel good about ourselves. Well, I've heard how God's already brought down tremendous giants in your life. Is that true? And because of that, could you spare me? Could you... I don't want to die with these guys. She is asking to join them. Now God could say, fat chance, you're a prostitute. But he doesn't. As a matter of fact, what God says is, why don't you come along then? But this is what they say. Well, we'll make a deal with you. We're not going to just say that you can, by the way, when the girl comes over, she doesn't, she's not a prostitute in the, in the land of Canaan. You're probably aware of that. It isn't like she brings shop with her. She repents of the life she's come from because she's joining a whole new world. And interesting in it, they're like, well, here's the deal. Anybody that you care about gets has to go into your house. You hang the scarlet thread, which appears to be the thread that she let them out on. And if we see this red thread, this is the house we'll spare. Now, this is the part I wonder. And by the way, we're going to be careful, but do this this week if you're kind of inquisitive like I am. Read through the next handful of chapters. And when God has them walk around, and some of you are familiar with the children's story. It's not a children's story, but we get it as children. Where they walk around, the wall falls down flat. How much of the wall falls down flat? And if all the wall falls down flat, how does this part stand still? So it, does this part stand and she gets out, or does she and her family get out through that same cord to join them when they were marching around? It doesn't say. But it does say that God spared them. So you can decide that on your own as you read this. It's kind of a fun thing. Now hear me on this scarlet cord thing. It isn't like everyone just sort of decorates themselves with big red ropes. But hear me. That when they dyed things, they would take certain, certain materials. Clay was one of them, pomegranate were another. There were certain kinds of fruits and there were certain kinds of clays that what they would do is they would put them in water and they would boil them. Because obviously they wanted it concentrated if they were going to use it as a dye for clothing and stuff. And what they would do is since they didn't, have, they didn't store that kind of stuff in pots, they took these ropes, from this is my understanding, they took, these, they took ropes that were loose and they were fresh, and what they would do is they would throw them into... As they had just dried, they'd throw them into this as it was boiling. What happens is the color would get absorbed into this rope. And then as the color was absorbed into the rope, what would happen is when you wanted to go dye other things, you took some of the rope, threw it in a boiling pot of water, and then you threw in whatever it was you're going to dye. In other words, it was sort of like that was your sachet of dye was the idea. So if the case is, what is she doing with that? I wonder if that's payment from someone else. It doesn't say. But what it does say is, that once again, there's something red dripping from a frame. And the last time I saw that was in Exodus 12, when we put blood on the doorposts so that God would pass over and we would go free. Huh. And so with this, all right, we'll make a deal. You can't tell anyone, and everyone's got to be in your house. Don't you think it's amazing? And please hear me on this. This prostitute cared about her family. Do you think her family was proud of her position or her occupation? It's hard to say because, let's just be honest, in Canaan everything was kind of anything goes. In Jericho, perhaps all the more. But this prostitute still cared about her family. 
Interesting, by the way, you're probably aware of the fact that a lot of people caught in the trade industry today, that they're, that what the people who hold them in that position do is they use their family as the bargaining chip. We, have, we know where your family lives back in Russia, and if you, you try to escape, we'll kill your family. It still uses its tool today. So they're like, we'll make a deal then. You go ahead. And you put all of your family in this house and they'll be safe. Anyone outside of this house? Not safe. Sounds like the ark, doesn't it? You're only safe if you're in. You'd say, well, I don't think, I think that's too limiting. You know, I think we should be able to put people in all kinds of places on the wall. Hey, you know what? If you wanted to actually stay alive, you'd stop arguing and you'd get in the house. And that's exactly the point here. So please hear me. This person that exercises this kind of faith, notice what he says again in verse 11, and we're almost done now. He says, For the Lord your God, He's God in heaven above and on earth. And I can tell you, I know who your God is. He's the real one. Because He's the real one, would you swear to me by Him, please? So, alright, there's the deal. Give me that scarlet rope that you let us down Leave it in your window. Well, no, that's the one to stay away from. Everything else is going to go down. And so the guys come back. And as the guys come back, they say, Joshua, just like you promised, we truly do have victory here. We're going to take this thing down. But that's not the end of this gal's story other than her being spared. So let's close this with this. If you can get to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, the stuff you might read through really quickly, go to Matthew chapter 1 with me, please. Remember that stuff where it's like, oh, those names I can't pronounce. Well, let's get to the part where people do stuff. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, the G, the, did you guys get there, by the way? Just looking, go ahead and get there. I'll take, I'll, I'll wait. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez, sorry, I'm sorry, Judah begot Perez in Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, not like the fish. Salmon begot Boaz by, do you see it right there? Rechav. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. It means David's dad was Jesse. David's grandmother was Ruth. David's great-great-grandmother was this gal, Rechav, that was a prostitute, living on a wall, but it heard, oh my goodness, the real God's here. I would be wise to side with him. Tonight, as we go to prayer, the real God's here. And you would be wise to side with him. Tonight, the Lord wants to do something amazing in your life. And I believe what it is, first and foremost, is he wants to take down the walls in your life that don't belong. But for that to happen, you're going to have to side with him. 
You could be like the king and say, I know that this God's come and I know he's probably going to win, but I'm going to fight until I die. Doesn't that just sound stupid? And you know why it sounds stupid? Because it is. On the other side of it, beloved, please hear me. There is a God tonight who wants to rip those things out and take them down to the point where you just never... It isn't like God's just going to go, let's just move it a little bit, and then maybe the enemy will try to move it back. God wants to tear these things down. Man, no matter where you're at tonight, you can come to Him. And if you come to Him tonight and say what she did, I know that you're the real God, you're the one that's the boss of heaven, and you're the one that's the boss of this earth, and therefore you should be the Lord of me. Here's the good news. That scarlet cord turns into a sun. That scarlet line that came from this girl takes us to David. What Matthew shows us, as does Luke, is that line leads and ends with Jesus. And with Jesus, He dies on the cross so that all of our, the harlotries of our heart, all of the whoredom of our minds, all of the things we've sold ourselves out for, they're done, man. They're just done. After this point, she's just Rechav. And after Rechav, she becomes Mrs. Salmon. Then she becomes great-great-grandma, the king. And I wonder what God sees in you, what he's got planned in the line that he's planned for you and for me. If we're willing to lay all that down and let him take us over like he wants to, side him with him, let him take down the wall. By the way, here's the scary thing. Chances are, if it's a wall you think that can't come down, chances are you're probably living in it too. But sooner or later, you're going to need to leave that wall. If you accept the gift of Jesus Christ tonight, believing He died on the cross and rose again, God's going to tear things down out of your world that you never thought could be torn down. If you have already said yes to Jesus, it is time for us to walk. And trust that no matter what the battle is, it doesn't matter how big the opponent, the odds will always be in our favor because we have the Lord with us. And we need to stop sizing up the opponents and the opposition and start exalting the one who fights our battles. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text. I thank you for Rechav's illustration this real woman who really lived, and I can't even imagine the emptiness of the life she had lived, the soulless aspect, Lord, of the soulless aspect of having to give up her body for other people's pleasure while selling her soul over, in essence, for perhaps some stalks of flax and a rope. But God, I just thank you so much that that's not how the story ends. She doesn't die a harlot. This particular gal now, somewhere down the line, will take that same act that was so crude and filthy and and so against what you invented it for.
And that same act will be used in a way to help birth the Messiah, our Savior Jesus. And I thank you that you make clear that you have, you were unintimidated by where we've come from. No matter how filthy, how disgusting, oh God, all of it, all of it is laid to rest when we say yes to you. So Lord, help us not to get our identity from what you killed, but rather help us to get our identity from you as we follow you and you make us more in your image. And for those walls that we feel like may be there for the rest of our life, Lord, show us that you are the wall destroyer. You are the wall terminator. And I thank you, you are. Tonight, reconcile to our our hearts and hearts. Really be honest to say, God, I I guess I inherently know this stuff, but my heart needs to know it because that's where decisions are really being made. And tonight, in this room, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and you know you need to, I'd just like to give you the privilege of saying yes to him tonight. So I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Those are my words. Let that prayer be mine now. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. Like human beings are sinners. I'm one of them. But I believe you so love me, you sent Jesus, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross for my sins. And he bled and he died there. So that all of my sin could be washed away and my debt could be paid. And as Scripture promised he would do so, he did. He was buried and just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. As he died, he paid for my sins And my verdict died with him. And as he rose, he offers me new life. No no longer under the whoredom of my own heart, but now under the freedom of your adopted love. And I say yes. Tear down those walls. Set me free. And let me love you and live for you the way you love me. Wholeheartedly with total abandon. I say yes to your gift of Jesus. And I hand myself to you now. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of heaven and earth. And I'm siding with you. Not this world. Not the enemy. I'm siding with you. And I belong to you now. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say Amen. Lord, I pray. For those who have prayed this prayer today, cement that in their hearts. Develop it, Lord, in such a way now that we would follow you as you desire. Thank you, Lord, for the way you've spoken to us tonight. Jesus, in your name, amen.